Hi, this is Albert. And this is Luke. Today is Monday the 18th of January. Welcome to the Telescope Investing Podcast. Two weeks ago, we reviewed our 2020 model portfolio. We discovered that our model portfolio had gained 40% in just five months, and we wanted to understand why that was. We dug into some of the reasons for the portfolio's success, and I think we identified that it was really beneficial that we'd followed mega trends, and many of the trends we forecasted for 2020 played out in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. Another key factor in the portfolio's outperformance is that we had diversification across different sectors and different market capitalizations, and also across different perceived risks. But we didn't have so many stocks that the portfolio started to resemble an index. And we also gave an equal allocation to each of our stocks. So they all had an equal chance to contribute to the overall result. As we go into 2021 and we design a new model portfolio, I think it's good to summarize the purpose of the model portfolio. First, we want the model portfolio to deliver long-term market beating returns, not just this year, but for many years ahead. But we're definitely focusing it on this year and we are trying to pick stocks that we think are gonna outperform the market in the year we've chosen them. And also, we want this portfolio to be a solid diversified portfolio in its own right. For 2021, we've allowed ourselves 15 stocks. We think 15 is about the right number that we can still track in a lot of detail month to month, but still gives us enough diversification. And if one of those 15 companies underperforms, it's not going to hurt the model portfolio too much. Obviously, we wouldn't want any of our picks to underperform, but there's always a chance that one or two might do that. So having 15 stocks definitely minimizes the impact that that would have. But before we get into these stocks, we received an interesting letter from one of our listeners this week. A letter, Albert? Are you still receiving letters? I got an email from one of our listeners, Christopher, in Denmark. Maybe if he sent us a letter, it would have taken a lot longer to get here. You're right. We received the email, Luke. As you can tell, I'm old school. Anyway, Christopher emailed us with a couple of questions. We wanted to dig into one on today's show because it really ties into the theme of having a diversified versus a concentrated portfolio. It sounds like Christopher's got a really great problem to have. And actually, it's a problem that many successful investors run into from time to time. Just to read an extract from his email. I hold a big portion of gravity and C compared to my other shares. They make up about 50% of my portfolio. But at the same time, I feel they have so much more potential and I'm reluctant to sell. Do you see my dilemma? Do you see Christopher's dilemma, Albert? I've had this dilemma myself a few times in my investing life. The first time it happened is when Netflix started to grow very quickly about 10 or 12 years ago. And at times it was 30 or 40% of my portfolio. I think all in all, I trimmed it five times as it grew and grew and kept on becoming a, a sizable part of my portfolio. I've had the same issue with Netflix. I had to trim it on the way up. Also, more recently, I've had to do the same thing with Shopify and with Tesla. They both just kept growing because of their successes and compounding and becoming, for me, too much of my portfolio. I felt too overexposed, even though, a bit like Christopher, I felt they all had a lot further to run. I took the sales proceeds from selling Netflix and used the money to invest in other stocks, some of which have become big winners in themselves. I think you mentioned some, but companies like Shopify, Tesla, and Mercado have become big winners in my portfolio. And now Netflix is about 8% of my portfolio, mostly due to other stocks doing much better over the last two or three years. And the thing is, maybe I wouldn't have bought those stocks, at least when I did, if I hadn't sold Netflix. Yeah, that's true. You might reinvest the money in a more effective way in a different growth opportunity. 
So what's your personal limit? How much is too much for you, Albert? I didn't really start thinking about this until Netflix became such a big part of the portfolio. But now I have a limit of around 20%. If a single stock becomes 20% of my portfolio, I get a little bit nervous and start thinking about trimming it. Yeah, I think my number's about the same. Perhaps it depends on your conviction in the stock and how much you're willing to accept the risk of having a significant overexposure to one company. Yeah, but even though you have a high conviction in a particular investment, nothing is 100% certain. You wouldn't want too much of your portfolio in a single stock that might drop in value, possibly down to zero. Yeah, there's always that risk, but I think we should reflect on the benefits as well. If you've got a highly concentrated portfolio and you're fortunate enough to be invested in real growth areas, then clearly you're going to benefit much more from having a bigger exposure to those growth stocks. But that does come with the risk of being concentrated in a much smaller number of names. I think in the end, whether you trim an oversized position or not depends on your risk tolerance. Are you able to withstand the big swings up and down that result in having such an oversized position? We've been at this game for coming up for 20 years now. And I think we're a bit more emotionally resilient when we see our stocks and our overall portfolio swinging wildly, particularly in volatile times like now. But if you don't have that really long-term view and confidence that short-term blips are just that, they're market reactions and overreactions rather than a fundamental change in the prospects of the company, then perhaps it's better to have a smaller allocation. But as you said before, Luke, this is a good problem to have. For myself, I've only had to do this for a couple of stocks. And just recently, I trimmed my Tesla position because it had become almost 20% of my portfolio. However, since then, Tesla stock has increased a further 30%, but I don't have any regrets. It was reaching a size where I was feeling a bit uncomfortable. And I think really that's the ultimate test here. It's your own comfort levels. I think we've said in previous episodes, if the size of a particular position is causing you to worry and lose sleep, you should think about trimming it. I hope that answers your question, Christopher. And again, thank you for your email. Yeah, absolutely. We do love to hear from our listeners. And if you've got questions or there's a topic you'd like us to explore on the podcast, drop us an email. I'm luke at telescopeinvesting.com. And I'm albert at telescopeinvesting.com. Anyway, should we get to our main topic of today? A review of some of the mega trends and the stocks for our 2021 portfolio? Sure, Luke. In last week's episode, we covered a number of mega trends in which we wanted to invest. And this week, I think we'll cover a couple of them, mainly the ones that Luke and I are in complete agreement about, as some of them we still need to work on. Yes, some of our mega trends we're still having furious debates about the choices in. And actually, there's emerging news in a couple of them just in the last few days that's thrown our choices into a bit of a spin. But we'll pick up today on the four or five where it's non controversial. The first one of those is e commerce. You and I are both really aligned around our three e-commerce picks. So in this mega trend, we consider the companies Amazon, Etsy, Mercado Libre, C and Shopify. And independently, both of us chose three of these stocks that we wanted to invest in for the model portfolio. And they were Mercado Libre, C and Shopify. Let's just very, very briefly talk about why we chose them and why actually we've excluded Amazon, which was part of the 2020 model portfolio. I think we covered these in more detail in an earlier episode called Alternatives to Amazon. A lot of the reasons why we were so bullish about them then still apply now. I love Shopify as being the anti-Amazon, really putting the small retailer first. I love the ethics of that business model and how it's helping the economy during these tough times. We talked about C in that earlier episode, and I also mentioned it as one of my key trades for 2020, as it was one of the few stocks that I invested in in the market crash that happened earlier last year. It has been a big winner for me. And when I look at it now, it's firing on all cylinders. 
I still see a huge amount of growth left in it. Since our episode on C, C has won a digital banking license in Singapore. Also, it's bought a small bank in Indonesia, signaling bigger plans for banking in the Southeast Asia region. And this might tie in with Mercado Libre, but C is expanding in South America, having entered the Brazilian market and soon Mexico. Yeah, I'm a little conflicted about that last piece of news. Definitely interesting when two of our high conviction companies start to tread on each other's toes. C and Mercado Libre are very much in the same business. They're basically the Amazons of their markets. I do feel that Mercado Libre have got a huge growth runway ahead of them still in South America, but it is interesting to note that C are starting to enter those markets also. Yeah, so Mercado Libre is often called the Amazon of South America, but it also has a digital currency in its Mercado Pago platform. And it's also worth mentioning that C also have a digital currency platform called C Money. Albert, you and I have both got Amazon in our own portfolios, and it was part of the 2020 model portfolio, but I think we're going to set it aside for this year. For me, the main reason we're doing that is just its huge, huge $1.5 trillion market cap. I don't expect Amazon to drop back. I expect them still to continue to prosper, even given that they're coming under regulator scrutiny with some of the concerns about their anti-competitive practices. But fundamentally, at that valuation, they're unlikely to double, triple, 5x, 10x from here, or at least not in the next few years. I just feel that Shopify, Mercado Libre and C offer much stronger growth prospects. I agree, Luke. Shopify, Mercado, and C have market capitalizations of around $100 billion, which isn't small, but still a fraction of Amazon's size. We also considered Etsy as it's also growing strongly and it's becoming a bigger e-commerce player. But we wanted to diversify out of the US and invest in the growth of e-commerce in other parts of the world. Yeah, that's a great point. Mercado Libre and C give us great exposure to very large markets overseas and even Shopify. They're very concentrated in the US, but they're a Canadian company and they serve the whole world. Moving on to the next mega trend, which was e-payments, we actually expanded this to the more general mega trend of fintech. Yeah, we felt that we'd already picked up a number of strong e-payments players with our e-commerce choices of Mercado, Libre and C. So we wanted to expand this category a bit just to have one extra stock. The three companies we looked at for our fintech mega trend were Square, PayPal and Lemonade. Yeah, Lemonade is a small company that IPO'd in July last year, and it's been doing really well. If you're not familiar with Lemonade, it is a young company hoping to disrupt the insurance business. It's very popular with millennials and may become the insurance provider for that generation in the same way that Airbnb has become their way to travel. However, we did have questions about their business model and valuation concerns. I've seen some quite insightful commentary on perhaps how they'll struggle to scale into the bigger markets of car insurance. At the moment, they're really focused on home and renters insurance. So in the end, we selected Square for the model portfolio. You've been a Square shareholder for some time now, Albert. What's your sense on where they are as a business? They were doing really well before the pandemic, but last year, they've grown much more quickly due to everybody being locked down and relying on digital payments. But I see Square also benefiting when people start venturing out of their homes and into physical stores. Because the way they started was having these dongles for your mobile phone that allowed retailers to accept credit card payments more easily. Where does the Cash App fit into their business model? I've been reading a bit about that. So the Cash App is their digital wallet platform, allowing people to send money electronically to each other. And it also allows other features such as trading stocks. Are Square trying to position themselves almost as a bank? Actually, they offer a suite of financial services 
businesses, mainly to small businesses, such as business loans. But I believe the majority of their revenue these days is coming from the cash app. A few episodes ago, you mentioned their decision to open a fairly big Bitcoin portfolio to enable them to better serve cryptocurrency transactions. A few months ago, Square bought 50 million US dollars of Bitcoin. And I think that's really played out well for them, given Bitcoin's rise over the last two months. But Square actually started allowing Bitcoin trading in its cash app in 2018, which in hindsight, was ahead of its time. For example, PayPal only included this last year and plan to introduce it to their digital wallet, Venmo, this year. It is interesting how some of these newer players are opening up access to that highly volatile, relatively unregulated market. And at the same time, many of the bricks and mortar banks are stepping firmly away. I note that recently HSBC have now started refusing to take deposits from Bitcoin wallets. Let's move on to another mega trend, healthcare. We actually broke healthcare down into two subtrends, medtech and biotech. And I think we're ready to announce our medtech picks, but we're going to park biotech until next week. There's still a bit more research to be done. We were in complete agreement on our two medtech stocks, and they were Teladoc Health and Intuitive Surgical. I think we're both shareholders in both of these companies. Those two are in my top three or four all-time conviction stocks. I recall that I had to fight quite hard to include both of them in the model portfolio. We were definitely both agreed around Teladoc, but I had to do a bit of arm twisting on Intuitive Surgical. Well, uh, I did some research myself last week and given your arm twisting and the articles that I read, I've been convinced that Institute Surgical is a good investment for 2021. Just a quick recap on who they are and what they do. So they were a pioneer in robotic surgery from over a decade ago. This is a highly regulated space and it's really hard for new entrants to play catch up. Intuitive Surgical are literally years ahead of anybody else. It's really a razor and blades type model. Most of their revenues are recurring as they sell the components that are used in individual surgeries, the scalpels and the devices. Yeah, I believe they have very little competition. Their main competitors are Johnson & Johnson and Medtronic, and they're very far behind Intuitive Surgical. One of the reasons why I was more keen on having Intuitive Surgical in the model portfolio is that I read that there was a backlog of surgeries that were postponed due to the pandemic. But Intuitive Surgical are already seeing a rebound in the number of surgeries at the end of last year. Over the last few years, they've scaled out their footprint in terms of their geographic coverage. I think today they're in over 70% of large hospitals in the US, and that's growing fast in other markets. They've also scaled out into different types of surgery. Every time they add a new procedure, that's a huge addition to their total addressable market. With 70% of large hospitals in the US, it may sound like Intuitive Surgical may have reached market saturation, but at the end of 2020, they had around 5,000 machines deployed around the world. Around 2,800 were in the US, around 700 were in Europe, 600 in Asia, and the remainder in the rest of the world. As you can see, there's plenty of growth left in international markets. Just to match the current number of machines per capita in the US. And you know, there's a news article I saw just a week ago that makes me really encouraged about the progress Intuitive Surgical are making. They've just completed a successful trial in a UK hospital where they had a senior surgeon remotely monitoring a surgery taking place in real time. This experienced practitioner was able to give advice to the more junior doctor who was actually doing the surgery. But Luke, would you be comfortable having surgery with your surgeon sitting in an 
build a city? Well, you know, absolutely. Particularly if I'm in a developing market where perhaps there isn't the deep expertise on very niche, complex cases. If I knew that my surgeon could have access to the world's best healthcare on a needs basis to help with particular parts of the procedure, then yeah, that's going to make me much more confident about having that complex procedure. I only hope that that surgeon is not playing Fortnite on the side. (laughs) That's a funny analogy, Albert. Maybe it is like playing video games. Maybe you could live stream your surgery on Twitch and have thousands of Twitch players deciding where to make the next incision. You know what? Twitch is not a great word when you're talking about surgeries. Steady hands, Albert. Steady hands. The other stock that we wanted to include in the model portfolio is Teladoc Health, which I invested in late last year after you told me about this, Luke. I raised my position in Teladoc in November, and I'm really pleased I did so. I really think that their model is playing out. As a quick reminder, what Teladoc Health do is broadly twofold. To gloss over the detail a little bit, there's doctors on Zoom. You can contact your health professional by video and have a video consultation. But with their acquisition of Livongo Health, they also have deep integration with the medical devices that you might be wearing, your smartwatch or your diabetes strips. And they can now detect when a patient has a spike in a particular metric, which might in real time prompt their medical practitioner to reach out with a phone call or a nudge. I found telemedicine to be quite interesting, but I also thought like Zoom, it may drop in usage after the pandemic. So I wasn't convinced when it was just Teladoc Health, but when they merged with Livongo, it became a lot more interesting. I think the use of data science and machine learning to guide people with their health conditions is a really powerful idea and can really transform health care of these chronic conditions. And I think they've got a lot of growth ahead of them. Their market cap today is broadly $30 billion. This feels like a huge market they've got access to. I think their total addressable market for remote health was estimated at being $250 billion. So there's a long way for Teladoc to go. The total addressable market for healthcare must be in the trillions. Yeah, healthcare as a whole, you're absolutely right. With companies like Teladoc and Intuitive driving innovation in this sector, it's only going to make healthcare more affordable and more accessible to all. These feel like really ethical plays for me as well. They make me feel good about how the companies I'm invested in are helping the world. Yeah, healthcare in the US is a very complex area and many people can't afford proper healthcare. And anything that private companies can do to make it more accessible for everyone is fantastic. Yeah, totally. Well, let's park healthcare. Those were easy picks for the two of us. And let's talk about entertainment, another one of our mega trends. Streaming entertainment has been a real growth area this year as people just haven't been able to go out. Companies like Netflix and Amazon have helped us all keep our sanity while we've been locked down at home. So in this mega trend, we considered the companies Netflix, Disney, Spotify, and Roku. And we only allocated ourselves one spot for entertainment. And with that restriction, both you and I, Luke, chose the same company, and that was Disney. Those four picks, they're all actually pretty different, accessing different parts of the market. But you and I were both happy with Disney as being the right choice for a couple of reasons. Yeah, one reason was that Disney launched their Disney Plus streaming service in 2019, which I have to say is one of the luckiest time business decisions ever. Disney Plus really saved Disney in 2020. With all their theme parks closed down, Disney Plus enabled them to still promote their brand and get their characters into people's homes so they could also then still profit from their merchandising. When they launched Disney Plus, they expected to acquire 90 million subscribers within four years, and they've achieved this after just one year. They now expect to have 260 million subscribers by the end of 2024. And to compare this with Netflix, it has taken Netflix 13 years to get to 195 million subscribers they're at now. It just shows the power of the Disney brand 
brand and the amazing intellectual property that they've got and how that's enabled them to build their customer base for Disney Plus so quickly. I'm a Disney Plus subscriber since about a month ago. I've already trawled through most of the Marvel back catalogue. I've rewatched a bunch of the Star Wars movies and I'm digging into some of their Pixar catalogue. Yeah, unfortunately, Disney Plus is not available in Hong Kong, but as soon as it is, I'm subscribing. Yeah, it's kind of a no-brainer, especially if you've got kids. For another seven or eight bucks a month, it's a good addition to streaming offerings from Netflix and Prime. And since they've had this success with Disney Plus, all the other movie studios are really struggling and they're all playing catch up now. There's a couple of other reasons we chose Disney over its competitors though for this category. And one of them is their huge theme park footprint. It's a bit of a revenue beast that's been turned off for most of the coronavirus pandemic, but we do see the world reopening in 2021 and their theme parks are going to come back with a bang. Families are going to be desperate to get out and do something fun. And what better way to restart your social life as a family than going to a Disney theme park? And also movie theatres are having a terrible time at the moment, having to close due to the lockdowns. And there's some rumours that some of them may not even survive and go bankrupt. But when they come back, there's an expectation that they may only show these big tempo movies, which is exactly the type of movie that Disney is known for. I had a quick look on Wikipedia and Disney own about 14 of the top 20 highest grossing movies of all time. Yeah, they've been such an acquisition beast. They must own half the movie studios now. Well, as you said, they own Marvel, all the properties owned by Lucasfilm, which include Indiana Jones. They have Pixar, and now with the acquisition of 20th Century Fox, they have all their franchises, including Avatar and the Alien Predator franchise. And Disney itself is no slouch in the IP market with their huge roster of cartoon characters and films. Yeah, they just feel like the all-in-one play for entertainment is kind of a no-brainer and hard to choose companies like Netflix, Spotify or Roku over them. But I think another reason why we chose this is that it's a relatively large cap and it has, at least to us, a low risk we don't think Disney is going anywhere and the chances of it going bankrupt are almost zero. And we did this because we wanted to balance out the portfolio across market cap and perceived risk. And many of our other picks have higher perceived risk. Yeah, I think in the structure we put together to analyze the 40 or 50 companies that we looked at, Disney was probably the lowest risk of all of them. So that covers four of our mega trends that we talked about last week. And I think we'll leave it there for this week. And for our key takeaways, we'll just reiterate that for e-commerce, we selected Shopify, C, and Mercado Libre. For e-payments, we picked Square. For the MedTech megatrend, we chose Teladoc Health and Intuitive Surgical. And for entertainment, we went with the all-in-one play of Walt Disney. And next week, we'll cover the remaining megatrends and the remaining eight or so stocks. I hope we are able to make decisions of them. It's definitely proving tricky in a couple of areas. So let's see how our conversations go this week. Yeah, that'd be interesting, Luke, because we're going to back these stocks with our own money. So it's going to make a material difference to us. We're invested in many of these companies already, but I'm really building my own conviction in these companies conversations we're having, these truly feel like the best choices for the year ahead. So I'm planning to move at least 30% of my total portfolio into the model portfolio stocks that we choose. It's worth saying again that we're not trying to choose the best performing stocks of the year and taking big risks in choosing high growth, small cap stocks. We're really designing a portfolio that as a whole will achieve above market gains. None of us know what 2021 has in store for us. It could be another huge boom year for the stock market, or it could be a major correction and a reversion to the mean. But in either of those situations, we would expect the model portfolio of hand-selected stocks to outperform where the market finishes by year end. 
Well, that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. If there's a future topic you'd like us to cover, you can message us on Twitter. I'm at Luke Telescope. And I'm at Albert Telescope. Or you can email us at feedback at telescopeinvesting.com. If you enjoyed this episode, you can also find more content at our website, telescopeinvesting.com, where you can leave us a comment or a review. And if this is your first time tuning in, perhaps consider subscribing to the website so you're the first to hear about new articles and episodes as they drop. Thanks, Albert. Thanks, Luke. This podcast is for general information and is not a recommendation to act. Please seek independent investment advice before entering into any financial transaction. Entering into a transaction that involves securities or derivatives puts your capital at risk. Luke and Albert are not regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority or the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, and the companies mentioned in this podcast may be held personally by us. We can't be held responsible or liable for any action taken by a listener, and as ever, past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Thanks, and happy investing.